The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to another Slate spoiler special. I'm Susan Matthews, Slate science editor, and today we'll be spoiling Blue Planet 2. Blue Planet 2 obviously is not a traditional plot-driven show that you can spoil traditionally, so I am joined in the studio with a delightful rotating cast of our science writers and thinkers and editors, and we are going to have kind of an unconventional conversation about Blue Planet 2, what happened, what we thought about it, the octopus, etc., and so on. Uh, Here to talk with me about the series is Dan Engber, who is Slate's science columnist. Hi, Dan. Hello. Uh, Writer and host of the podcast Working, Jacob Brogan. Hello, Jacob. Hello, it's me. And Future Tense editor, Kirsten Berg. Hi, Kirsten. Hello. Later in the show, we'll also be joined by science intern Alex Barash to talk about how the series was received in the UK and the US. So... Let's just open it up. I wanted to ask all of you actually a little bit about your initial relationship with Blue Planet and the Planet Earth series. I think that for me personally, this is the first time that I have ever sat down and intentionally watched an entire Blue Planet uh, uh, series from start to finish and not kind of just in a kind of stoner college way of let's put on planet Earth for several (laughs) hours. Um, So that has been a totally different experience for me personally. And I was wondering to just hear a little bit uh, about your guys's past relationships with the with the the series and and how how your viewing experience went. Well, I can say that I have never seen another series in the plant blank planet blank uh, uh, franchise. And yet I'm an intense partisan for Blue Planet 2. I've been recommending it to people, and some of those people have ended up watching Planet Earth 2, which is on Netflix right now. And that's, this has made me very angry because I'm sure that that's an inferior product, that Blue Planet 2 is the best. But you have not watched Planet Earth 2. I, it can't be as good. <laughs> <laughs> Specifically because of the, like... I just, how could it be better than Blue Planet 2? They're watching the wrong thing. I, uh, for my own part... Um, I'm a relatively uh, new watcher of these series. Um, I, I've watched most, but not all, of uh, Planet Earth 2, um, mostly, if I'm being honest, while working out, which is not quite the uh, stoner college version <laughs> of putting it on, but um, may not be the highest attention form. But there are definitely also moments that I've spent, you know, sitting on my couch just like sobbing uh, as you know, baby animals, you know, leap from cliff to cliff uh, in beautifully shot drone footage or, or what have you. Um, I, I, can, I, I, can I ask when the, when the, like the snakes come after the iguana, uh-huh. do you run faster on the treadmill? I don't, you know, I don't, I don't run on treadmills. I don't, I don't, I don't run uh, as, as a rule. Uh, but you um, work out harder. I in do the work gym. out harder. The, my, my burpees and sprawls get more intense. I jump higher, <laughs> my heart rate accelerates uh, and I end up, on the floor, uh, panting uh, like uh, a small lizard that has narrowly escaped a horde of snakes. Excellent. Uh, and I've been watching uh, this uh, these types of series for 
on and off over the years. Uh, again, just fascinated by everything that's in them. Um, David Attenborough was giving an interview to David Remnick of The New Yorker and said that the thing that still keeps him coming to this, that still keeps him astonished and amused about the natural world is just how many problems there have been, how many different solutions that evolution has come up with and the way that these series can can document them and all all the ways that evolution has come up with logical solutions, illogical solutions, and really beautiful solutions is just mesmerizing to watch. Yeah, yeah, I, I certainly um, agree with that. I think that that kind of gets into one thing about Blue Planet in particular, Blue Planet 2, that stood out to me is that I think that the you're, the the first thing is that you're in this world that unlike even a jungle or, uh, you know, some of the more familiar terrain of, say, planet Earth, like the entire thing is the ocean and it is so already foreign that there's this immediate um, displacement that happens to you as like the, the viewer. Um, and I think that that is something... To, to go to Dan's point, like it it is so completely foreign that it feels like something that has never happened before. Um, and I think that the this question of how did all of these things evolve to exist in these different very specific habitats is a great one. Um, something that I think about a lot as a science editor as we think about how we intersect with animals and how we think about creatures and ourselves is um, a story from the book Ishmael that I remember reading in high school that talked about how the human story of evolution, you know, we talk about you know the the tree branching out and evolving, and then humans came into being, and and we are done. But every single creature is like its own endpoint on its own tree. Um, the jellyfish thinks, and then jellyfish were created, and and we're the most perfect thing to do what we are supposed to do. Um, and I really love that idea, and I loved how Blue Planet Two specifically showed us so many creatures, so many strange ways of existing in the world um, that. I would never have thought of. Um, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of our favorite uh, and most remarkable teachings and learnings from <laughs> from the series. Uh, Percy the fish who uses tools uh, is one in particular that comes to mind. The seals that um, corral the tuna into the into the into the shoal into the shores and and then you know remove them from the from the ocean there there are Those a lot tuna of th- are so big by the way like that was <laughs> I, I mean in just like the, there there are moments where this series is just dumbfounding in the things that it shows you and that for me was one of those moments where you you, you don't quite get a sense of what those seals are up to until you see at the end of the sequence when one of them is pulling this tuna that is as big as it is uh, it's i think david attenborough tells us it's uh, 60 kilograms or something but but which doesn't really mean anything to me because i don't understand metrics but it's just so cool uh, yeah. to see the bulk of the thing in this creature's maw. Yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the specific creatures that stood out to you, the specific episodes that stood out to you. For me, the one that resonated the most was definitely 
the coasts. And I can't quite tell if it's because um, the there's there's like there was a sense of being disoriented throughout the whole thing. Like I was mentioning about you're you're just in the middle of the ocean. And I found that a little jarring. Like there were multiple times where I felt extremely claustrophobic while watching it. And like the coasts allow a little bit of breathing room and you get to go between ecosystems and you get to feel like, oh, this is a place that I understand again. And so I felt like I glommed onto the coast as like, okay, this is weird enough and, you know, it's expressive enough, but it is also uh, understandable in this way that that makes sense to me as a person who who has been to a place like this. And there's so much of this series that is just in a place that you have have never been before that I found just extraordinarily remarkable. Uh, Dan, what was what was you jumped? I know that you watched this by jumping around, not going directly through. Yeah, I jumped around a bit. And and I should say I also abandoned the final episode halfway through. The um, the final about the making of? the No, no, no. The one that was like, um, what you can do oh, for the yeah. ocean. <laughs> we can definitely talk about that one. <laughs> so uh, I'll stipulate that. But yeah, I mean, it's funny that you said that you liked the coast. The coast episode was brilliant, um, but that you identified with it more. I think the, the single scene, there are a lot that have stuck with me and that I think about Literally, as I am falling to asleep, I lie in bed and I'm picturing that like sea cucumber thing that looks like it's from the Naked Lunch. But oh I God. there's the um, sea cucumber is one of or, the most extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> but I was going to say the one the one the one that sticks out is the one that was the most disorienting, and it was it was when it was in the episode on the deep where you go to the bottom of the ocean and then there's this like lake of brine. Mm -hmm. So it's a lake within the ocean and it has a coastline of this lake and there's all these shellfish there and like eels about. And David Attenborough even says, he's like, it's sort of hard to grasp what you're looking at. And I just watched it and then rewound and watched it again because I couldn't, my brain couldn't process what I was seeing. Just these eels diving into the lake and then, popping back up and then just stopping because of course they're in the water and they can just stop. <laughs> but that image of the eel that that gets like what eel toxic shock syndrome or whatever, mm-hmm. I don't really understand what was happening there, but it turns itself into a pretzel because it spent too much time in the brine lake. I, that image has stuck with me more than any other. Absolutely. And as uh, someone who has been watching these types of series since I was a kid, uh, one thing that really did stick out about Blue Planet 2 was just all of the ways that technology has allowed us to be able to film some of these things in ways we haven't before. The submersibles they were using, the research vessel and the probes that were going in places where cameras and people have never been before. Um, The drones that were able to film that scene of the sea lions to give you that perspective of how they're hunting, how the individuals have roles within that hunting group. Um, The diving suits even that can stay down in water longer. They don't create bubbles. They don't create sound. It gets these closer encounters. Um, You get the low-light cameras that are capturing the bioluminescence of the plankton as the manta rays are flying through them. Um, And, yeah, it's just really incredible what it's been able to to capture. But but what was your favorite animal? Um, It's probably between the orca doing a backflip and slapping and stunning the herring uh, and the octopus and grouper hunting together and and sort of like making away like a, a buddy comedy and they had just pulled off a great heist. <laughs> yeah. well, my A lot of my favorite moments were also moments of animal interaction, both the collaborative ones, but also some of the ones that were 
collaborative at the level of ecosystem rather than individual survival. Um, so I think of, for example, the uh, sequence about um, these sea turtles. I think maybe they were green turtles that are um, chomping on uh, little sea, chomping on seagrass. And then there, the, we see this again from one of these drone shots. We see a shark just kind of circling the turtle, and the turtle has to move on. And Attenborough's interpretation, his explanation of it at least, is that uh, that the effect of of this process of turtles just kind of uh, chomping away and sharks cruising for a turtle that's sick enough for them to chomp down on uh, is that the turtles have to constantly move on, and because of that, the um, the seagrass never gets fully depleted, that sense of um, the way that, that animals are thriving in this system together, even when they're preying uh, on, on one another or on elements of the, uh, of the ecosystem was, was really cool. Um, similarly, I, I loved the, um, I'm from the Pacific Northwest, I grew up on the Oregon coast in part, and I loved the sea kelp uh, section uh, and this sort of narrative of, um, first of a fish kind of tending its little fish garden, which was like something out of a very bad Beatles song. Uh, <laughs> and and then the, the, this urchin, the, or, or urchins, urchin armies coming in and uh, and, and kind of eating away at, at the gardens. Um, and then learning about the, um, I may have said sea lions earlier, I meant, I meant to say uh, sea otters, um, whose populations had been devastated by human hunting um, as, as they're recovering the ways that the kelp forests are recovering. That that interaction, that interlocking of, of animal lives um, was so well narrated um, in that section. It really was. One thing that I found very interesting that I felt kept on happening in these episodes is that like you're in a place and then it's like every single episode was built around this idea of layering this creature and then this group of creatures and then this group of creatures. Like it seemed like there was a climax of each episode that was like, and then in the ocean, there are thousands of each of these different things swarming together in perfect harmony. Like it seemed, it felt to me a little bit in in different contexts and in different places that like every episode kind of had this same arc of really drilling in the interconnectedness of these species and how they had like, like there are so many places that um, what you're capturing is these like never before seen uh, like the the one that I'm thinking of is in the in the great blue, I think, or maybe it was it was the, the one that was just like out in the middle of the open ocean. Perhaps it was called the open ocean um, where the the ultimate thing you have the sharks and the the schools of fish. And like there were so many moments like that that were just like climaxes of species, like extreme concentration of species that I kind of felt like. Every time I, 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 for some reason, there was like an intellectual part of me that was like, yes, this is extremely important, but I really just prefer learning about like Percy the fish and <laughs> his ability to knock on, like to open his shell. Mm-hmm. Um, did, did anybody else feel like I kind of felt a little bit bored by that, like the, the constant <laughs> climax of all of the, the happy ocean creatures like swimming in harmony together? <laughs> I don't know that I was I was bored, but I de- it definitely it bothered me that this sort of vision of the interlocking uh, species, the interlocking was like the in- the in- the hold the interleaving of of hands, like everyone's holding hands and feeling good. I wanted more like interlocking jaws ripping animals apart, and it did feel like there was a lot of that stuff was like you know the ocean scene through rose tinted 
like scuba goggles and stuff like that. The Jacob mentioned that the turtle eating the seagrass and then the shark, you know, it's like, hey, why don't you just, you know, mow the lawn over there instead of here? But really, I mean, isn't the what was going on is every once in a while the shark would just like tear a turtle to bits, which is why the turtles would skitter away. And yet the show kind of leaves you thinking like, oh, it's this sort of happy relationship between sharks and turtles. This this brings up actually one of my main questions, which was, was there enough successful predation? No! (laughs) You know, that is a problem of this series generally, at least in in Planet Earth 2. Um, We see a lot more failed hunts than we do successful ones. Um, I I was talking with Alex uh, Rash about about this the other day, and um, I, I think they're... It, it may not seem like it uh, if you just watch Blue Planet 2, but we do get a bit more of the nature red and tooth and claw stuff in this uh, series than we have in other things that, that Attenborough and, and, and co. have done. Um, but I but do, do yeah, think, there could be do more. You think, do you think that the – this is a question. Do you think that the lack of successful predation is because it is rare and hard to catch on camera? Or do you think that it's an intentional choice from the filmmakers? I would say, uh, based on watching the whole series and thinking about what they were trying to do with it, that it was very much an intentional choice. And we can talk about this a little more when we talk about the impacts that they wanted the series to have. But I think that they were really trying to get across to people that you should love the oceans. And in some ways, you do that by presenting charismatic animals and not too much brutality. And it was really striking especially with the sharks. It was so rare that you would see a shark hunt. Um, In fact, the most memorable shark scene is probably the whale fall in the deep oceans where you see the the six gills who haven't eaten for maybe a year, uh, some of them, uh, going after the whale carcass. And there's another whale carcass that the sharks feed on, but it's... Great whites really tear the shit out of that one. Yes, it's terrifying, but you kind of know the whale is dead. There's not not predation involved. yeah, yeah, that's really striking. It is striking too that that the um, the violence that they dwell on most here is the violence that um, humans, the anthropogenic violence. Uh, think of the the scene of the the baby whale that its mother is uh, that's being carried around by its mother after its death because it's it's been you know killed by plastic that we've dumped into the ocean. Um, that moment is is haunting, and it would but it would have been I think there would be something a little more honest about seeing that moment and, and in relationship to more, you know, blood and guts uh, in the ocean itself. Well, there was one moment in the, I, I wasn't really sure if the very last episode, the eighth episode that was the making of, like if that was how that was connected to the whole series. I kind of felt like there was this climax in the in the seventh episode about our influence on the oceans. But just in that one episode, um, there was a part where they're showing the the corralling of the tuna and then they're showing the consumption of the tuna and the ocean is red. And I felt like, oh, we haven't seen blood in the ocean this this entire time. Yeah, I, I think with the sharks biting the whale, there's some some blood happens. But yeah, it's a it's an animal that died of natural causes or whatever. Got yeah. by, one of them got hit by a boat, which was... Uh, which they just is sort of a tossed off fact, like, oh, this whale got hit by a boat, so now sharks are eating it. Good for the sharks, but but yeah. Well, I mean, there 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 is successful a lot of successful predation, but it's always of uh, you know dumb little fish that we don't care about. There like were the turn we, chicks. That was pretty devastating. Oh yeah, 
Yeah, those trinchics got totally owned by uh, by those those giant fish. <laughs> but in but in the key in the key storyline there, it 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 gets away. <laughs> you know, it just like loses a couple feathers. But I mean, there are those like that um, that shrimp that's stepping out on its partner who's who eats a lot of little fish. Um, and then there's and there's that terrifying like sandworm from Dune that just keeps <laughs> popping up and like sucking fish down into its you know. Is that the one that's called a, a bobbit? Yeah, the bobbit. Oh, the yeah. bobbit will the haunt bobbit. my dreams. <laughs> one, one of the greatest Attenboroughisms. But here, a bobbit is lurking. <laughs> <laughs> that is the bobbit. Perhaps makes up for all of the horror that I uh, was missing in the in the rest of the episodes, and I think that I have frankly blocked it out as a result. Yeah, I will say that the 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 the, the uh, episode where we go into the deeps was not uh, Cthulhu heavy enough for me. I needed more. I needed to see more of these monsters just being really monstrous. However strange they looked, I wanted to see them just, you know, beating the crap out of other fish or whatever, whatever <laughs> it is that they do. I don't know. Maybe they don't do that, but I, I would have liked to have seen it. <laughs> uh, but depending on how you view the seas, there was either some horror or fascination in just how alien some of these creatures were. You have some of the deep sea creatures mm-hmm. that are communicating entirely with light, with ink, with flashing, with with dots. Um, you've got the uh, sex changing, I think it was a sheephead wrasse. Um, that went from a female to a male with this giant bulbous head and the chin. Um, and that, I, yeah, that, that, that part was totally wild. That is also a part that I think about, like, going to sleep at night now. <laughs> like, maybe perhaps I can, do, I can do this. But this provides actually a delightful transition to the creepy and strange animals, because in our next segment, we're going to talk about the octopus. So now we are joined by Alex Barash, our science intern, who has um, also written about and watched all of Blue Planet. Welcome, Alex. Thank you. I'm excited about this. So in our next segment, we're going to have the Great Octopus Debate of 2018. <laughs> uh, two, two relatively <laughs> recent pieces in Slate take two tacks to this, uh, to this story. How should we think about animals? And I think they do that without necessarily contradicting each other, to be honest. At the heart of each is the question of how do we think about creatures? How should we and does it matter if, they, if we reflexively compare octopus? Octopuses or creatures in general to ourselves. Um, as Jacob writes in his piece, but when we speak of celebrity octopuses as if they are just like us, we may actually minimize how wonderfully strange they are. What's astonishing about Inky's story isn't that he escaped. In fact, octopus literature is full of such flights to freedom, but how he figured out that such a path to freedom might be feasible in the first place. Um, Inky the octopus is an octopus who was in an aquarium in New Zealand and escaped. And when he did escape, it prompted a massive outpouring of internet delight about the fact that this octopus might have escaped his aquarium where he had been trapped. Escape um, here strongly in quotation marks. Though. Strongly in quotation <laughs> marks, as we will discuss. Uh, Jacob's piece is a lovely meditation about how uh our our desire to as- ascribe our own human desires of escape to this octopus perhaps undermine what is truly excellent about the octopus Dan's piece, which takes as a given that the octopus has achieved a cultural status that is perhaps not warranted and uh requires some revisiting uh assesses the intelligence of the octopus from numerous different cognitive tests and concludes that the octopus is not necessarily that uh, at, at all that we have propped it up to be. 
And then he also adds that this idea when when the octopus is kind of put in its place, we um, we don't necessarily accept that, as he writes, when pressed with evidence that an octopus might be kind of dumb, we should instead consider all of the ways that it's different from ourselves. This logic may be sound in scientific terms, but again, it's disappointing. If every animal is special and each one has its own unique intelligence, then why should we be any more enamored of the octopus than, say, the clownfish or the clam? So I think that one of the things that Blue Planet 2 does really extraordinarily is it takes each it it really gets you into this world of these are creatures that are just so different from anything that you ever imagined. So Dan, I know the the octopus piece that you wrote had been brewing for a while I think before you saw Blue Planet 2. What was the trigger and what was it about Blue Planet 2 that propelled you to write it? Well, there was just a clip from Blue Planet 2 that um, I started to see spreading online a bit last fall when the show aired in the UK. Um, And it's the, I mean, extraordinary sequence where an octopus is escaping predation by a pajama shark and sort of rolls itself up in um, seashells and stones and other objects on the bottom of the of the ocean. And and it's just like disguised as a as like a ball of crud. And it's amazing. And that was sent around, you know, in this in the style of like octopuses are our overlords. Look how amazing the octopus <laughs> is. So I thought that was just a good time to um, to weigh in with my uh, anti-octopus hate speech. <laughs> <laughs> and Jacob, what was your reaction to seeing the octopus captured? I think they say captured a, this this phenomenon of just it's, it's self-disguise is something that was captured for the first time in Blue Planet 2. You know, this may point to where... Dan and I don't disagree on everything. Um, the, my reaction to that is like, wow, that's pretty cool that the octopus covered itself in shells. Um, but also the pajama shark, which is pretty adorable looking creature, by the way. Uh, the pajama shark figured out where the octopus was almost immediately. So the octopus goes through this incredibly complex camouflage display practice, which is, again, super interesting, super cool, uh, remarkable to see. Uh, and then has to jet away seconds later, at least in, in the chronology of the show, uh, when when the pajama shark turns around and it's like, I, you know, I think there's an octopus there. And then and then it gets, you know, it gets distracted by investigating the shells and trying to figure out what happened because, you know, to whatever extent we can actually talk about fish uh, and, and, and sea life intelligence. Presumably this pajama shark is, is not that clever, uh, even if it is a good hunter. Um, but it's it's not like this seemingly ingenious thing that the octopus did has actually uh, afforded it that much uh, higher chance of survival than maybe just swimming away would have done at the right time in the first place. I don't know. I'm not an octopus. I don't think like an octopus. I don't understand how octopuses think, uh, which is part of what I find compelling about them. Uh, but, you know, it's it's not, uh, it's certainly not our overlord in that moment. It's just really neat. Yeah. Um, and Jacob, when you... When you read Dan's piece, I mean, I think, as as I said, I think that you guys are kind of arguing more from a similar place than a, a different place. Mm-hmm. Um, what did what do you think about how the culture has has propped up the octopus since? Because that was something that you were kind of writing against in, in your piece yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, to me, the octopus remains useful. Uh, and, and I understand that, that Dan make, 
quibble with this. The octopus remains useful as a, an emblem of certain kinds of animal strangeness um, and animal otherness, perhaps, as well. Um, it's forms of cognition, uh, as I suggest there, um, are more embodied. It, if, if we talk about, you know, pure weight of its brain or something like this, a number of neurons, it's uh, not doing that great for the most part relative to us. Um, but the way that its brain is distributed throughout its body, the way that uh, that it and other cephalopods um, think through forms of exploratory touch, the way that cognition is distributed uh, throughout the limbs of its body, for example, uh, remains pretty uh, fascinating uh, to me. And I think when we just try to make octopuses cute or just say they are smart, um, we may miss what is compelling and worth further study uh, about their intelligence um, by trying to make them too much like us. One thing that what, the reaction that I had when watching that sequence where first the octopus uh, holds its tentacles over the gills to suffocate the shark in and forces it to go away and then it disguises itself. The thing that I found so remarkable was imagine if a shark was attacking you and the way that you dealt with it was to suffocate the shark and make it run away. Like there's something that seems so ingenious specifically as something that is different than how I would react. One thing we, we know about octopuses, uh, not know, one thing we, you know, partially understand about octopuses is that that action, uh, stuffing its arms into the, the uh, shark's gills may not even be something that it did at a conscious reflective level through its sort of central brain. That may have been something that the arms just kind of found their way to doing that worked. Uh, and that is really weird. Imagine if you were being attacked by someone and your hands just did something really convenient <laughs> um, that maybe fed some information back to your brain uh, that you then continued to do because it seemed to be working or, or, or something like this. Um, that's pretty cool, I think. Uh, though, though Dan... Um, has, has, a cool. of, yeah, has a useful it's critique cool. of some of that research in, in his, uh, his piece. I mean, if a, if a mosquito attacks me, I'll slap at it without thinking that that's what I should do. I don't know if that means my arm has a brain that's with, a, with its own thoughts about how to combat mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. um, well, if we cut off your arm, it, it would not slap a mosquito, <laughs> whereas uh, an octopus arm might still do something like this, uh, if, even if it were severed, uh, so long as it remained alive. I just want to say that I once wrote a Slate Explainer column on what to do if you're attacked by a shark, and mm -hmm. you should punch it in the nose. I, I've yeah, read that. I've, I've so heard that about, about, the about mountain lions. <laughs> if the octopus were a little smarter, it just would have bopped that shark right in the nose instead of this whole, you know, nonsense with the gills. I mean, insofar as there is, is disagreement here, I think I'm kind of team Jacob on this one, because I don't think that they need to be like humans or ingenious in order to be delightful and fascinating. Like, the weirdness is the appealing part to me. Um, I'm not excited by an octopus opening a jar, but I am excited by an octopus suffocating a shark and covering itself in shells to escape certain death, you know, which is obviously not a thing that a human could do or would be inclined to do, as Susan points out. And, you know, um, Dan, you said that a scene from the Deep Sea episode was the one that stuck with you the most. And that was my favorite episode as well, in large part because it was just so profoundly alien and hostile and resistant to human interpretation. So is there not a kind of like magic in that alone or does it need to be 
a genius to be interesting and worthy of our attention. No, I totally agree. And I think, um, I mean, so my argument against the octopus is on the on one level, just like, hey, if you actually look at what they can do, they're not really that smart. And a lot of the stories of their escapes might be made up. Um, but really, the thing I was interested in and trying to get at is the way that um, I think the octopus, the way we've constructed the octopus in our minds is as this thing that is both smart and like us and with, you know, Paul the octopus or Inky the octopus anthropomorphized, but then while also keeping in mind, holding in, in mind this value of, oh, it's so different. It's like, it's intelligent, but it's an invertebrate. And like, look, look at it. So it's crazy looking. And I I understand the appeal of that, and I and I share a sense of of wonder at how different it is. But I think one of the things Blue Planet does really well, I give you that for fish. If it had chosen to give you that for the pajama shark, it would have. It just didn't. You know, the, the pajama shark kind of gets stiffed on all this. <laughs> but but yeah, the a deep episode, like every. 30 seconds, there's a new organism that could have the cultural status of the octopus if we bothered to pay attention to that thing, like that that totally messed up fish that has like a transparent head so that it can look up. You know, there's just like a lot of weird stuff down there that we could never understand and that fills you with awe if you choose to be filled. Yeah. <laughs> one, of the, one of the deep sea fish, the one that has like sensors on its head that detect water currents and other things around it. Uh, I wanted to know more about that guy because mm. uh, because what what is its cognition like? What is it? I mean, this is the old "what is it like to be a bat" problem, maybe. But but what is it like to experience uh, patterns in the water uh, in that way? I, I have no idea. I mean, the, the narwhal. We don't. I don't think we see any narwhals in uh, in this series. But but some research suggests that that narwhal tusks uh, have the capacity to detect salinity levels in the water, which may con con contribute to hunting behaviors and such. I mean, like, to me, the fact that that's how they're experiencing their briny world is much more interesting than the fact that they have a tusk at all. Uh, trying to learn more about these me mechanics uh, of uh, sensation is is um, the, the kind of stuff that happens around the margin of this series that I always wanted to know more about. Yeah. So one thing that I think is really fascinating is that in Blue Planet 2, like we're meeting the animals where they are and where they live and like in their actual habitat. And I think that one of the chief complaints, which I agree with in Dan's piece against the oct octopus, is that we have chosen how we see this creature largely in context of how it relates to us, like specifically this uh, narrative, which I think Dan unpacks as largely false about octopus escapes um, to me shows how humans are so used to seeing animals as heroes and as as creatures that we put our own desires and, and wishes onto. And if you actually think about instead of meeting the creatures where they exist in the world and understanding what their actual struggles and, and tasks in life are, you have to approach their intelligence and their uh, ingenuity from a completely different perspective. Well, so one of the responses I got to that piece was, you know, people saying, look at this, you know, hipster bullshit science journalism, <laughs> which I I love that idea that that's what I do. But then also, you know, like what are you trying to destroy people? Can't people feel wonder? <laughs> and it made me I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me is this question of like how I feel like the wonder at the octopus is kind of, you know, ginned up in some it, and the fact that we're focusing on this one organism, even over and above other cephalopods. I mean, I felt in Blue Planet 2, 
freaking cuttlefish oh my god so much more amazing yeah the chromatophores that was crazy gorgeous and 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 sophisticated in their behaviors and all that stuff so but i just there's a question i have for all of you which is is there is 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 there some value in kind of focusing wonder i i want to talk about wonder because i feel like that's the that's the that's something that's hovering over this whole Mm, series mm -hmm. um if you know, if you say, oh, the octopus isn't that great, like part of what I'm saying there is like all animals are great and even plants, you know, but right, if, you, not... if you spread it out so thin, then maybe you lose the 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 punch, the like the aesthetic value of, of wonder. So maybe there is some, you know, maybe it helps the way Blue Planet 2, you know, zooms in on one, not just one species, but one individual or they tell you it's one individual and so that you can just like get your wonder fix from that one thing. <laughs> I think that that's specifically the problem that I had with how so many of these episodes seem to climax with the the intersection of these species rather than just the individual species. Because I found the thing that felt so remarkable to me was uh, like understanding the nuts and bolts of these very specific interactions and the struggles for survival that each individual uh, placed. And and I thought I- I'm somebody who is constantly like against the idea of, of anthropomorphizing animals in a general sense. And yet when the when David Attenborough decides to narrate an actual story of one animal's struggle for existence and survival, that is inherently moving and incredible and relatable in a way that I found to be just a, a pure delight. Yeah, I mean, I think in part it maybe works better than some other series because it relies purely on these anecdotes and it's kind of zooming in on this one moment. It's not trying to tie the animal into a wider narrative arc, although there is an extent to which that happens when you try to like unite the different schools of fish or whatever. So I can understand why you have reservations about that. In terms of why we value some animals over others, I wonder if there's an extent to which it's about accessing those animals like the the ethereal snailfish had never been filmed before by anyone until blue planet 2 and you know that deep sea episode alone they spent a thousand hours filming and they spent 500 hours in those subs which is crazy and terrifying especially given the the behind the scenes footage where it's like oh our sub has sprung a leak and we're 500 meters down in the antarctic ocean so the fact that they now have this technology and can start to find these new creatures to be fascinated by maybe opens up avenues for uh, something more than the octopus to to hold our attention. Yeah, I mean, I would I would love to know more about Inky, the ethereal snailfish. (laughs) But I think that's really interesting because it it makes me think that maybe the the animals that we choose to, uh, you know, form cults for are those that are as bizarre as possible, but also happen to be, you know, living close to the border of humanity. Yeah, it's just the wealth of material there (laughs) for the viral videos, you know? You you touch on this in your piece really well, I think, Dan, but one of the sort of complex elements of the appeal of the octopus as a cultural object is that it has long been an object of horror. Uh, Simon Montgomery also uh, writes quite well uh, in her book, The Soul of an Octopus, uh, which is about mostly about her own encounters with uh, cephalopods. Uh, she writes uh, at, at certain points about um, the history of terror uh, around octopuses, swallowing ships, uh, pulling sailors off boats, and so on in the Mediterranean, uh, the poisonous beak, etc. Um, and and I do think some of our wonder, some of the, the, the joy that we take in 
in them and their strangeness is about um, pulling back from that sense of horror uh, at the unknown, um, at the uncertain. But I will say of, of wonder generally, uh, that wonder is, it's not enough for wonder to have an object. It's not enough to wonder at the octopus. It also has to have a direction. Uh, I think wonder is good when it takes us somewhere, when it encourages us to learn more, to discover uh, other animals in an ecosystem or other elements about the way that they think through the world and experience it. Uh, wonder should prompt us to go further. And uh, I don't always know if it does here, um, but I did find many of these things quite wonderful. Yeah, I I think uh, to your point also, Jacob, that wonder can be prompted not only by affection, but also by revulsion. And I think that this series does that uh, very well. So the octopus, overrated, underrated, certainly a wondrous creature either way. Um, so now the last thing that we wanted to talk about was kind of Blue Planet 2's reception, um, how nature documentary intersects with how human beings should think about the planet um, and and whether or not Blue Planet 2 was effective of, at that. Um, Alex Brash wrote a piece that published yesterday that asked that that stated that Blue Planet 2 captivated audiences abroad. Why didn't American audiences care? And in it, he lays out the case that this series became a downright cultural phenomenon in the UK and does not seem to have had as much of an effect in America. Um, and so I wanted to kind of pose the question because Alex says in his piece that, um, you know, it can't just be Trump. The UK is going through its own political problems. But for me personally, uh, the existence of Trump and Trump in my daily life was perhaps one of the reasons that I felt so drawn and so relieved by the ability to escape into this series and just descend into a totally different world where you didn't have to think about anything. And so for me, it was a form of escapism rather than a reason to ignore the series. But I'm curious if uh, if you guys had similar. Well, I, th I think to say mm -hmm. it can't just be Trump is an extraordinary claim that demands extraordinary evidence. <laughs> yeah, just looking at the response in the UK relative to the US was interesting to me because, as Susan pointed out, you know, the UK is also in this incredible political turmoil, which maybe not all American readers or viewers are aware of. But, you know, that uh, Theresa May's cabinet has been reshuffled many, many times and Brexit is going quite badly. So I, I don't think... There's a. I don't think that having this political turmoil in America is enough to explain why we just don't have the bandwidth for Blue Planet. And as Susan says, it can be a form of escapism. So uh, I guess I'm not convinced that just having politics happening in the background would be enough to dissuade people from uh, participating in this. It's not like we've stopped watching TV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, how about here another maybe two two theories? I don't know if there's anything to that. I'd just be curious what you think. Okay. Okay, so um, the UK is more of an island than we are. There's more ocean around. <laughs> <laughs> there's uh, a lot of that, but in actual quantity of coastline. All right, fine. Scratch that. <laughs> uh, what, what about, is there something about like what is actually happening with Brexit that, you know, uh, that has some like 
symbolic weight or or resonance with the idea of you know the great ecosystem of the ocean. Like I I don't know, it seems like what the specific form of the turmoil is like. We're separating from the ecosystem of Europe. Um, I don't know if that's quite like the the spirit of what's happening there feels different from we just have like an like insane asshole in charge. And and also the David Attenborough effect that oh, David yeah. Attenborough is like a not a nationalist. He's a he's a national treasure, yeah. <laughs> which might intersect with the nationalist movement in a terrible way. This might be a very unfruitful vein. <laughs> um, to the point about uh, Britain being more of a, a seafaring nation or having more coast, I would also point out that there was a huge response in China, which, you know, a lot of China is not, uh, is landlocked and a lot of people are in these urban environments. So it's not just, oh, I can see the ocean, so I care more about it. I would, I would push back against that a little bit. But yeah, there are definitely other factors. And I think one element is also just that the UK has invested more in public broadcasting than the US. Uh, America is, I think, one of the only countries where public broadcasting was never the dominant form. So the BBC kind of had space to figure out the perfect formula for a nature documentary before they were commercially viable. Whereas in the US, there was this trend toward a different tack because they had to sell tickets or get viewers. So they started bringing in celebrities and they made it very simplistic and dramatized. So there are sort of different strands of what a nature documentary is in these countries and maybe what it could mean as a national moment or its capacity to generate that kind of cultural response. Right. And as Alex points out in his piece, um, this is a documentary that is very much uh, it's it's speaking to our wonder, but it is also pretty obviously making the connections between human impact on the planet, on the ocean, um, climate change. There are a lot of actually explicit directions and 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 threads being woven through the entire series and particularly the last episode uh in the series overall talks about the the human impact on our planet and and the the fear that americans have just decided like we're not gonna really there's a there's a large swath of america that seems like it's decided that that we're not going to pay attention to that. And then in addition to that, because it's so fractured, there's like a bit of exhaustion in which even watching something like Blue Planet 2 feels like you can't really escape from Trumpism because it's bringing up the mm. the huge rift in, in American society. Um, it's bringing it, that's at the forefront as well. That last episode aside, uh, I do both in Blue Planet 2 and in Planet Earth 2, um, find the ways that climate change uh, and other anthropogenic effects that are disastrous to the natural world um, are presented to sometimes be almost, I don't know if this is the right word, but almost kind of kitschy. Um, it, it's like in every single episode, there is this five minute bumper at the end that you could almost easily like predict well enough to turn off right before it, it starts where it's, it's like the, the, you know, you have 45 minutes of dessert before and then suddenly the episode makes you eat your vegetables. Uh, and, it, you know, we hear that uh, coral bleaching is happening, but maybe it's going to be OK. Or we hear that uh, plastics are being dumped into the ocean and that's sad. Um, and I, I often I understand why they didn't do this, but I often found myself wishing that 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 kind of material 
um, both in this series and in the previous one uh, in Planet Earth 2, was woven in more organically into the narrative throughout because it's not like a thing that's happening. It is what is happening uh, in each of these environments that we investigate. Absolutely. And I would argue that probably the best environmental case that they made wasn't about global warming. It was about plastics. And that is in part because uh, I think it was episode midway through, maybe episode four, that they actually devoted a large amount of time in the episode um, to talking about plastics and their effects on the ocean. And then they bring it up again in the final episode. Um, and we're already starting to see the UK make moves to ban certain kinds of plastics. And we've already seen uh, the US and other companies uh, around the world uh, start to ban microbeads. Well, that that's sort of my question, because even I agree very much with what Jacob said about the bumper and how it kind of could be applied. To, it just felt very similar episode after episode. But even in the last episode, which is purportedly about the human impact on the planet, um, I found that they took a the, the the framing of the episode was very deliberate in the sense that the first like 20 minutes were about all of these horrible things that are happening. And then it very specifically focused on a couple of examples where humans are making a difference. And like, it's great that we have the leatherback turtle conservation. Um, and then the second one, I'm like the, the both of the stories that they focused on seemed like such small potatoes in the context of the bigger problems that had been explored and perhaps even had been sort of glossed over throughout the rest of it that it it felt like it was conforming to this trope of like well this is really bad but you can do something about it and i just don't necessarily feel that that's true so i wonder how honest it is for the framing of these episodes to really rely on that because they need to make their viewer feel good about what they've just witnessed absolutely and i feel very conflicted about that the way that they set that up because on the one hand you kind of do need to give people a little bit of hope that it's not just a completely hopeless situation, that we shouldn't do anything because the corals are all going to be bleached. They're going to be gone in a century because the seas are warming and there's nothing we can do about it because there are plastics that are going to be there forever. Um, and, and to get people to act, to, to feel like they have some agency. But on the other hand, to always caveat with the, but there's hope, uh, can help people turn away from the issue and ignore it and also yeah, really gloss over just the magnitude of these changes and how they are devastating the oceans. Yeah, I mean, what I would say is that relative to a lot of other nature documentary series, I thought it did do a pretty good job of integrating these issues because in a lot of series, there is just that final episode where it's like, here's the reality of global warming and you can just not watch that episode and you won't find out about it. And, you know, that episode of Frozen Planet almost wasn't aired in the US. But here uh, there is an effort to to integrate it more into the story that you're seeing. In every episode and everywhere we go, we see the consequences of human activity. Uh, and it gets you to care about those uh, creatures in the first half of the episode or whatever. And then it shows you how our actions are hurting them. But I do agree with the criticism that there is a, there is this effort to be like, but wait, there's hope. And that's not always the most uh, honest way of doing it. And I think it's interesting that plastic pollution was kind of the most effective and got the most airtime and is now getting the most policy measures in response because that is kind of, relatively speaking, the easy one to tackle. It's not as much of a sacrifice as, say, cutting carbon emissions would be. And there's a clearer line that can be drawn narratively. So... 
yeah, maybe it's not uh, making the but, change. But that's really interesting because it's like, what is the what is the role and the responsibility of a nature documentary? Like this nature documentary, the role of it was to fill people with awe and to show them the wonder of the ocean. And the fact that a side benefit is perhaps that the UK is more tightly regulating plastic pollution is an enormous upside that is is perhaps not the core mission of, of what this documentary was trying to accomplish. I mean, I I may be the outlier in in this group in that I felt like the all that stuff I just could have done without the whole you know hundred percent of it, <laughs> um, and but I not that I wouldn't want human impact to be in the show. I just wish it had been like done in the style of the show. So you know how each scenario is mm-hmm. like pits you know um uh protagonist and antagonist and sometimes those species will switch roles like the octopus you're rooting for in in episode three and then the octopus is the like the kraken that's trying to kill the crabs in episode four or whatever but i would have liked the human to be part of that like why not use the same melodramatic corny but amazing techniques to show like i don't know um, there, a fisherman, like a, here's the cutting between the human on the prow of the ship, <laughs> looking, you know, for fish to eat, and then you're yeah. and now you're with the fish trying to escape the net. Like, why not do that, or or somehow, you know, work humans into the storylines, and you could have, you know, humans and 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 uh, sea creatures working together because this is like so much teamwork in this. I thought that would have been nice, uh, so that it felt part of the show and not like. Uh, you know, like, you know, eating eating your uh, vegetables or whatever. There was one moment that I think that they actually did try to bring in the humans that way. It was with the rubber ducky spill um, where they sh- – <laughs> Dan is making a great face in the New York <laughs> office. Um, they showed this – like a carrier – ship had released an enormous quantity of rubber duckies in the ocean, which is itself inherently poetic in a way. And then they distributed themselves all across the entire globe. And it was such a perfect metaphor for human impact on the planet and on the oceans. And yet there was a way in which they showed it. And they showed the ducky as a hero. Like it's an adorable ducky that they're filming from (laughs) below. And it's so cute. And it's in a frozen area. And then it's in Australia. And like how they they totally celebrated it rather than they could have totally taken that I hope they cleaned up those ducks because if not, fuck them. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um I I I doubt that they did. Like they're in the in the making of episodes they kind of talk about I assume that they ad- are adhering to a strategy of um no, not actually having an impact. Um but but that was a moment where I like uh, it felt like a missed opportunity and yet I also agree like when we demand our nature documentaries to straddle both tasks of showing us why we should care about these things and then propelling us to action like what nature documentary has ever been successful at at both of those things well alex in your piece you mentioned that uh that march of the the director of march of the penguins kind of reacted angrily to some of the stuff like why was there not more climate change with the penguins and didn't that person say you know the point here is to make people just like penguins and that's the first step towards you know being an environmental activist that was how i read it but i just thought it was sort of an interesting point which resonated with me yeah i think he was more frustrated by the evangelical christians who were like this reinforces traditional family values Mm -hmm. which is such a weird lesson to take from a documentary about penguins but yeah he did say um the first step is to get people to care and 
when uh, Frozen Planet came under fire for not talking about global warming in the US edition of the series, the series producer said, well, we need to get people to care first and we don't want them to not watch because this has a slant on climate change. And I think that's interesting and it does maybe have some merit in terms of reaching the widest possible audience, but there's a certain point at which not including these things at all sort of invites people to draw their own conclusions, even when those conclusions are uh, obviously scientifically false. And then they don't have to reckon with the reality of the situation and the fact that we are doing damage to the planet in the way that we are. So I think while the sort of preachy final episode of like, don't worry, these scrappy humans are on the case against global warming might not be the, the most effective way, I think that there is definitely value in having this conversation and overtly acknowledging the impact that we're having so that we can start to say, okay, we actually need to do something about it. We need to move beyond just loving the animals because I think we're there. I don't think anyone's do you, like, yeah, global guys, warming is good because fish are bad. <laughs> do you guys think that uh, that Americans didn't watch Planet Earth 2 because of how it referenced climate change? Planet Earth 2 or Blue Planet 2? Blue two? Planet 2, sorry. I mean, I I can't imagine because again, it's though it's sprinkled throughout. It's also really backloaded. So I mean, as I said, I was able to make it through the whole program and then just bail on the final episode when I felt it was being preachy. So I don't think I can't imagine that was why it it wasn't popular. Yeah, I I th I think that the the question of like why didn't American audiences care is still a bit opened, and I'm I'm not entirely sure. Uh, that we that we know, but also perhaps in our TV on demand age, there's going to be a long tail to Blue Planet Two, and people will continue to watch it as as they, you know, co congregate in college dorms. Yeah. One, one more theory, maybe just like in the UK, the BBC has a bigger built-in viewership than the B than BBC America Channel in the US. Yeah. yeah. But it was also simultaneously broadcast across a number of cable networks, like anyone with a cable subscription could watch, I'm fairly sure. So, yeah, but it is true that BBC America does not have the, <laughs> the inbuilt audience, and that kind of goes back to the public broadcasting thing. It's now available through a lot of digital streaming platforms. It will probably eventually be on Netflix and stuff. You can get it on DVD right now. As 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 some of you are already suggesting, I think that this is a show that will have a, a longer impact than than what happened on TV. That said, it, it is a shame that that it wasn't there wasn't a cultural moment around it, and and it may have just been because um, you know the Bachelor was really controversial this season, or, or the you know <laughs> the Olympics were were distracting us uh, in timing and such as well. And th there there are elements of it that aren't just political, but but have to do with what television we consume live in the United States. I think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so for our final wrap up, we've talked a bit about the animals that we found wonder in, and we'd like to conclude with the animals that we hated. Um, the, <laughs> we've, the, the enemies of Blue Planet 2. <laughs> Jacob. Mine is one that Dan mentioned earlier. It is 100% that terrifying sea cucumber thing <laughs> that pops out of its burrow or whatever. Uh, and then these tendril arms, I think there are five of them, six, I don't know, ten. 10, oh, 10, yeah. Uh, uh, it has 100 arms that <laughs> extend out of its terrifying gooey body. And then it has this 
what David Attenborough calls a mouth, but I'm going to 100% <laughs> say that's a butthole. <laughs> and it is just grabbing stuff out of the water and sticking it into its butthole mouth. And I died. <laughs> I, I think I am still living in the nightmare of that experience, and it is my whole reality now. And, you know, no matter how many chill, slow-moving whale sharks I watch uh, just swimming through the water like nothing matters with, like, other little sharks swimming under them, like, nothing will ever make me feel good again because that sea cucumber <laughs> is a monster. And there are many of them that still exist. Oh, good. Kirsten? Uh, this is a, a really easy villain to pick out, but uh, the Trevallis, uh in the psychos that were predating the uh, turn chicks, um, in part because, uh, I, again, the series was kind of incredible for how much it could change our ideas about fish intelligence of like gone are the days of like the three second memory of the goldfish of you have this predator that is uh, catching turns while they're in the air. And so it's calculating airspeed and altitude and trajectory and leaping out of the water and and, and catching some of these. Uh, and so it was a really easy villain to root against. Plus there's a big old mouth that's real scary. Yes. <laughs> Dan? Well, I think after watching the last episode, I realized that isn't the human the biggest villain God of all? God damn it, Dan. <laughs> um, actually, <laughs> the, the biggest villain of all clearly uh, were those gulls that were stealing the fish that had been earned through uh, hard toil by the um, the blue-collar puffin dads trying to feed their families. <laughs> but that actually, that scene, I, this is just my 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 two pitch, pitches for Blue Planet 3. One would be work humans into the exciting narratives, and the second would be let's have, like, do that whole narrative, that whole thing about the puffins trying to feed the puffling and, and the pirate gull stealing the fish. Then just redo the same story, but from the perspective of the gulls. And make them the heroes, and then the, somehow the puffins are bad. I just wanted like more uh, complicated Breaking Bad style heroes and antiheroes in my Blue Planet. The Bird World is never going to accept goals as the hero. <laughs> <laughs> There's no chance, <laughs> Alex. I mean, I will actually double down and say that humans are the enemy no, because right. after what I'm sorry, after watching that pilot whale carrying around her dead calf because of plastic pollution, I was like, I don't want to be part of this species anymore. <laughs> Susan, what about yours? Uh, I actually most viscerally responded to in a similar vein as the sea cucumber, the uh, time lapse of the starfish. Oh yeah, those were yeah. horrible. <laughs> like I used the, to I, like those. Yeah, I yeah those those were a creature that I had always thought had had extremely affectionate feelings towards, and it was a wonderful part of going to the beach. And now knowing that they are existing in that way in a tide pool is going to change my experience <laughs> with the coast. <laughs> um, great. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. For Dan, Jacob, Kirsten, and Alex, I'm Susan Matthews. Thanks for listening. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. 
I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.